Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good to be with all of you. For those that are new or visiting, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here at Arbor, and we are in the middle of a series uh, in the Gospel of Mark that we're calling um, The Life and Way of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 21 through 34 today. And in the first few weeks of this series so far, we have been uh, sort of confronted by this Jesus and his, his, his gospel, this, this good news announcement that he preached, that the kingdom of God is here. And in this Jesus, he calls us to repent and to believe this gospel, this good news message, and the life of a person who is doing this, who is walking with Jesus, it is marked by an individual who is with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. That's what a disciple is. And today, we are going to get our first glimpse as to what life in the kingdom actually looks like. And so as we've been doing these past few weeks, if you could, would you please stand with me again as I read through our passage this morning. Mark 1, 21 through 34. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they immediately told Jesus about her. And so he went to her and took her hand and helped her up. And the fever left her. And she began to wait on them, to serve them. And that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy of gathering. We thank you for this gift of being with your people here on this Sunday morning. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived. God, we thank you that he has brought in the kingdom of God, that he has inaugurated a new day. And Lord Jesus, now we pray that your spirit, God, would be with us. Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes. Would you soften our hearts as we take this glimpse as to what life in the kingdom looks like and would you stir our imaginations for what your kingdom would look like here on earth as it is in heaven now. Pray that you would anoint me, use my words as I preach today, God. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Um, So a little story first. About 10 years ago, um, off the coast of South Korea, there was this ship, and it was carrying about 450 people, a pretty big ferry, uh, many of them high school students, and on the ship, they were also carrying cargo and vehicles, but it wasn't too long into their journey um, that disaster 
struck. Uh, after some few errant directions and instructions and turns on the ship, it began to lurch and tilt, and it eventually began to take on water. And as the water began to pour into this ship, and as the ship began to sink, the mood on the ship quickly turned from this relaxed, happy environment to one of terror and one of panic. But in that moment, there was this low-ranking a 22-year-old crew member, his name was Kim Dong-soo, and he just began to take charge. He started giving orders. He started telling people what to do. He began to make his way to the lower parts of the ship and direct people out, and those who, who lived to tell the story about this moment on this sinking ship say that, that this, this wash of relief began to kind of spread over this small section of the ship as they realized, well, at least some, at least one person here is, is, is taking charge. And as the ship, it continued to sink, this, this young crew member continued to make his way down to some people in the hold, leading people out of the ship. At one point, he formed a human bridge by, by grabbing a ladder and then grabbing a submerged part of the boat underneath so that more people could cross to safety. Eventually, though, this, this ship sunk, and while many lives were saved, like many were not, many people lost their lives, including Kim Dong-soo, who, who literally gave his life to save dozens of people, people whose lives were saved because they placed themselves under the authority of this low-ranking 22-year-old crew member. And so take that picture, and let's, let's, let's bring it to a different country, a different coast, the country of Israel, the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee, more of a lake than a sea known by the Jewish people as Yam Kinneret, which comes from the Hebrew word kinor, which means um, harp or lyre, as you can see in this picture right here. That kind of looks like a harp, right? No, I mean, none of us know what a harp looks like, right? Let's just be honest, okay? Um, and, and it's here about 100 yards uh, inland off the coast in a little town called Capernaum, which maybe had like 1,000 people, 2,000 people, just a small village. It's there where we find Jesus and his four new disciples that he just called, and they're in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And what is Jesus doing in that synagogue? Well, verse 21 says that Jesus went into uh, the synagogue and began to teach. And so Jesus is in that synagogue and he's teaching. And Mark wants to draw our attention to this fact that Jesus is teaching because he mentions this five times. He says Jesus was teaching or, or he taught. And, and, and so he draws our attention to this. But what's interesting, and we will find this throughout Mark as we're reading this gospel, is, is that Mark doesn't let us know what Jesus was teaching in this moment. We can make an educated guess from the context, Mark 1.15, that it had something to do with, with his message on the kingdom of God drawing near and this call to repent and believe it. But Mark doesn't mention that here because Mark isn't so concerned with the content of, of the teaching, but he's, but he's more concerned with the nature and the effect of his teaching. Look at verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And so Jesus, he, he didn't teach like their usual teachers. He didn't teach them like the scribes and the Pharisees and the other rabbis in town. Mark states that Jesus taught as one who had authority. And that doesn't mean that Jesus taught forcefully and like aggressively and he was screaming the entire time he taught. 
The Greek word for this word authority is this word exousia, and, and it means uh, the capability, might, or power to compel a decision. You see, as Jesus was teaching, he wasn't merely weighing in and debating and theorizing about this or that interpretive issue on Scripture. As Jesus was teaching, he was teaching with this inherent divine authority that confronted those in the synagogue with the absolute claim of God on their lives. And it was different. People weren't used to this. And we can see that in their response. Mark says that they were amazed. But when we see this word here, amazed, uh, Mark doesn't mean that the people were like, wow, he's a really good teacher. He's re- I like his stories. And he's so clever and smart. That that's not what Mark is trying to communicate here with this word amazed. It actually means something more like alarmed or astonished or even concerned or panicked. They're like, well, what's going on here, Right? You see, Jesus wasn't just some sort of interesting, uh, persuasive, clever presenter. He was teaching this authoritative, powerful message that demanded the complete and utter surrender of his listeners. He wasn't going up there in the synagogue and he wasn't giving some kind of clever, inspirational TED talk. That's not what Jesus was doing there in the synagogue. He, he was calling his listeners to turn away from their enslavement to, to the darkness of this age and, and call them to follow him into this age to come. He was stretching his arms out, so to speak, to these people who, who were on a, on a sinking ship of sorts to draw them from their drowning into salvation, but a salvation that that was only available to them through surrender, through surrender. And this was a disruptive call. It was was an urgent call, and it caused people to to become astonished and, and, and grow concerned or panicked because the call of Jesus is one of total surrender. The call of Jesus is one of total surrender. The call of Jesus on your life on on my life, his authoritative call to this life in his kingdom is one of complete and utter surrender. His call that, that the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe this good news, it compels those who hear it to walk with him, to learn from him, to learn who he is and what he's like, and we are compelled as we follow him to make decisions of surrender as we journey along with Jesus. Giving up things is part of life. It's part of maturing. It's part of growing up. I have three kids, and I can still remember the different seasons in each of their lives as we took away their pacifiers, their binkies. Any parents have traumatic memories of those seasons? It was hard. It was painful. It was difficult. There were long nights. There was like negotiations, like, all right, okay, you can have it for an hour now. You know what I mean? Like there was bargaining and all of these things. Like it was difficult. But eventually, eventually they gave them up. And, and like so did all of you. I, I didn't see any of you walk in with a pacifier this morning because that would be weird, right? That would be strange, okay? We surrender things throughout life as we grow into maturity. And this thing called Christianity, called following Jesus, surrender is at the epicenter of it. 
surrenders at the end. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. This is life in the kingdom of God. And it's marked by an ongoing surrender in our lives to Jesus and his way. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he puts it this way. Life in the kingdom of God is not something we do, like investing in the stock market or learning Spanish. Listen, that allows us to reserve dominion over our own life and use the kingdom for our own purposes. We, listen, we have to surrender the inmost reality of the self to God as expressed in Jesus and his kingdom. Life in the kingdom of God is marked by ongoing surrender. And listen, while it might be difficult and it might be painful at times and it might feel like loss, it actually leads to great gain. And here in this passage that we have encountered this morning, we see two examples of what happens when Jesus enters into our situation, which is more like a sinking ship than I think any of us understand or know. And he acts with authority to make a way out for us, out of our drowning and into salvation. Again, a salvation that is only available through surrender. So the first example that we saw in this passage today happened right in the middle of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. Look at verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, he cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so Jesus' teaching not only provokes this like interest from the people, this amazement from the people, but it also provokes this conflict with an impure spirit in this man. You see, the people could intuit that something was different about Jesus, but this demon here, he knew what was going on. He was able to recognize that Jesus wasn't just a gifted teacher or some wise and clever rabbi. He knew exactly who Jesus was. He says it. He says, you are the Holy One of God. But what we need to understand about this moment is the impure spirit wasn't merely saying this about Jesus because he just wanted to add some clarity for the narrative so that we would get it. (laughs) Timothy Gombas, a Bible scholar, he notes this, that the act of naming is a power move. This is an attempt to dominate Jesus to get the upper hand in the confrontation. It it was an attempt to dominate Jesus verbally in the midst of this conflict. And it did not go well for the demon. Did not go well. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, be quiet, come out of him. And then the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And, And so Jesus With his own inherent divine authority, he commands this impure spirit to come out of the man and after a little fanfare and shaking and freaking out, the demon comes out of him. And so what we see here, the first time in Mark, for the first time in this gospel, is that wherever Jesus goes, wherever Jesus goes, the power and presence of the kingdom is there. His kingdom of light, it clashes here in this moment with the satanic kingdom of darkness that has just absolutely flooded God's creation and flooded God's people. And so note this, the reign of King Jesus brings shalom in the midst of separation. The reign of King Jesus brings shalom, the Hebrew word for God's flourishing reign of peace and order. 
in the midst of darkness that has brought about separation, we see Jesus here standing on the forefront of God's liberating kingdom of light. And so when we, as we follow Jesus, surrender to this King Jesus, we live under his reign. And as we live under his reign, we too can experience this shalom in the midst of a world that has been separated. We can experience a life of peace and flourishing and wholeness and goodness right here and right now. You know, I think we encounter a story like this about this man who was possessed with this impure spirit and we see a story like this and we think that these kinds of things, they don't affect us anymore. We think, well, that's just like an old story in the Bible and that happened all the time back then or maybe if you're like friends with like a missionary or something, you hear about a story about something that happened in a foreign land and you're like, that, that's, that's, that's over there, that's back then, that's not right now. And you see, I think that the reason that we think this way is we've been conditioned to look for the, de- the demonic in the spectacular only. That's what we've been conditioned for. But the scriptures, I think, show us that we can make ourselves vulnerable to these kinds of powers in some pretty mundane and unremarkable ways. If you look at Genesis 4, we see two normal, ordinary guys, Cain and Abel. Cain um, farmed the land. Abel raised sheep. And in this story, what we see is that they both bring offerings from their work to the Lord. And and in in the story, God looks upon favor at Abel's offering and not Cain's. We we don't exactly know why. There's a lot of thoughts, but we're not going to get into that today. What we see then, though, is Cain gets angry. Cain gets angry at this. And and God, God speaks to Cain, and God asks him. He says, why are you angry? If you do right, will you not be accepted? And then he says this, and this is important. Listen. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And then in the story, Cain completely disregards what God says, and he takes his brother out into that field, and he murders him. Listen, when we harbor anger and bitterness and jealousy, when we nurture unforgiveness, and we nurture contempt toward other people in our hearts, like Cain, we make, make ourselves vulnerable to, to, to the spiritual power of sin. Sin is not merely the bad things we do. It's not merely the bad things we do. Throughout the scriptures, sin is personified, like it is in Genesis 4, as this cosmic power, this agent of chaos and destruction that, can, that we can allow to take hold of us. It can take hold of our hearts. It can take hold of our minds, and it could lead us to act irrationally. We're overcome with desires for revenge, for anger, and we see the results of this all the time in our world. Churches split. Relationships fall apart. Communities are destroyed. Reputations are ruined. And listen, that's demonic. That's demonic. And we might not see individuals convulsing and hear demons shrieking, but but don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. When we or or people that we encounter in this world are so captive to, to their anger that we can't forgive others, that's fueled by the demonic power of sin. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I know that sounds real freaky. I get it, okay? And a lot of you are probably like, where are we going with all this? Listen, like, the point I'm trying to make is our struggle against sin, which is not merely the bad things we do, but it is a cosmic power working against the kingdom of God in this world. When we are in conflict, when we are struggling with unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, your, your struggle is not with that boss. Your struggle is not with that spouse, with that friend, with that parent. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so listen, all that to say, it is a powerful thing. It is a powerful thing when God's people lay down and surrender our our, our desire and our perceived right for revenge when we lay down the need to nurture that anger and dwell on that hurt and instead surrender to the authority and lordship of Jesus in our lives. And we do that, listen, we do that by embodying the love of God in Christ by choosing forgiveness, by choosing reconciliation, and by by choosing peace. Jesus comes with authority. And he asks us to surrender those things and and choose forgiveness, choose reconciliation, choose peace. And his reign, as we do that, his reign of shalom floods into our lives amidst the separation that that the demonic powers of sin can cause. When we surrender to this reign and choose these things, what we do is we invite the life-giving power of the Spirit into our lives uh, and, and we begin to inhabit God's presence. And wherever we go, the kingdom of God goes. This is what surrender looks like. The reign of King Jesus brings shalom in the midst of separation. So let's go back to Mark, okay? So Jesus, he commands this impure spirit out of this man, and everyone's shocked and amazed, and they start telling everyone in this town of Capernaum all about Jesus, news about him spreads, but the time at the synagogue comes to an end, and they travel down the road, I'd imagine, to Simon and Andrew's house. And it's here where we meet Simon's sick mother-in-law. Look at verse 30. So Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Now, a little side note, we learn a couple more things as we're journeying through Mark here. First of all, uh, we learn that Simon, also called Peter uh, by Jesus later on in Mark, uh, we learn that he was married. He was married, and, and maybe he even had kids. And so, so Peter's following Jesus came at a great sacrifice or surrender of his desire to provide for his family. I mean, there was, there was a great call on Peter's life, and he left a lot behind as he chose to walk away from those nets for fishing and choose to follow Jesus. We see this about Peter. We're given a little glimpse into the life of Peter. And the second thing we learn about Peter is that he was a, he was a good son-in-law, Right? I can imagine a lesser man would go into that house and Jesus walks in and they hear a little coughing in the side room and Jesus is like, what's that? And he'd be like, oh, don't worry about that. It's not a big deal, right? No, no son-in-law here would do that to their mother-in-law. But Simon, Simon's a good guy. He's like, that's, that's my mother-in-law. Let's go check out what's going on in there. And so they go in there and in verse 31, look at Jesus' response to her. So he went to her and he took her hand And he helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So a couple things here. Um, First of all, uh, when Jesus went into the room, it says that he took her hand. 
Now that might not seem like a big deal at the time, but it's actually quite a big deal because what's going on here is if you look at like the recorded history of, of all of like the rabbis and Pharisees' interaction with their people, and there's a lot of documentation on all of this, never was it recorded that any of those individuals, those religious and spiritual leaders, took the hand uh, of a sick woman. They never did it. And yet, yet here we see Jesus did. And what we're gonna see throughout Mark's gospel is that Jesus touches all the uh, quote-unquote wrong people. He touches the lepers. He touches the sick. He touches the dead. And here he touches this sick woman. And this was highly controversial. But listen, here's why it was controversial. It was controversial because these biblical purity codes were being misused to, to devalue and exclude all sorts of people from larger community life. They're setting up these boundaries, and what we see here right at the beginning of Mark is Jesus stepping across these man-made boundaries that have been set up to marginalize people. And Jesus goes where others won't. And when he does, he brings the sanctifying presence of the kingdom with him, a presence that brings purity, a presence that brings healing wherever he goes. And one more thing I want us to see here, look at her response again in verse 31. It says the fever left her and she began to wait on them. Now now here's what Mark and Jesus are not doing here. They're not just simply highlighting and like re-emphasizing some sort of subservient role for a woman here. That's not what's going on here. This word for wait on them in the Greek is a verb, it's diakoneo, which we get the noun diakonos from, which is deacon, an office of deacon. And so what's happening here is this is actually a very highly praiseworthy act in the kingdom of God. It's what the angels did for Jesus in the wilderness. It's what Jesus says is the mark of true greatness in the kingdom of God, service. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 45, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, we get another glimpse into what life in the kingdom looks like right here. The reign of King Jesus inspires service in the midst of sickness. That's what we see here. Again, when we surrender to the call of Jesus, we live under his reign. And here what we see is when we live under the reign of King Jesus, we are freed to live a life of service, a life that radiates purity and healing to the brokenness and sickness around us, a life that can step across man-made boundaries and reach out to those that we otherwise wouldn't be inclined to reach out to. Like, let me ask all of you this. The, The group of people that you spend time with, You look around your dinner table when you're hosting people, the people that you text. Do they look a lot like you or do they look different? Just think about that for a second because what we see here, Jesus' behavior here is a challenge for all of us, all of us who profess to follow this Jesus to embody his invitation to reach across broken and corrupt cultural boundaries and welcome all people to participate in the kingdom of God. That that's the revolutionary, groundbreaking work of Jesus here. Now we might like we might be like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. That's what I do. We might not outright say that we have clean people and unclean people, but we still have ways of 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 saying whether or not someone is approved or, or unapproved in our books. 
And, and we use gender, we use ethnicity, we use wealth, we use appearance, so many other ways. And typically, we're hospitable to those people that are on our approved list and not so much to the people who aren't. Craig Blomberg in his book, Contagious Holiness, writes that, that Christians, we need to develop habits of fellowshipping with varieties of people at every social location, those like us and those very much unlike us. This is Jesus' kingdom call on our lives as we surrender to him. We do this because this is what Jesus did. Remember, our ultimate call in our discipleship to Jesus is not some sort of individual, personal, spiritual growth plan where we spend time with him and become like him. There's more to it. We then go out and do what he did. We go out into the world around us and do what he did, not because it's a nice thing to do. We don't do this because diversity is something that people really like right now. We, we, we don't do this because we'll become popular. I mean, it says here after Jesus' first exorcism, and his first healing, that he was tremendously popular. Look at verse 32. That evening after the sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and then we read that Jesus healed them all, cast out all these demons. But listen, Jesus didn't come to this world to just simply provide healing goods and services to people. He, he came to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. What we're gonna see throughout Mark's gospel is that Jesus' life was a struggle against the forces of evil and the destructive power of sin and, and, and the, the, the drowning that that caused in this world. You know, like that young crew member on that boat in South Korea. Jesus came to be a human bridge to allow people to cross into his kingdom, to cross out of that kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, out of the drowning waters of sin and chaos and destruction into a life of wholeness and connection and shalom and service to others, a, a kingdom marked by shalom and flourishing and healing. And, and so this picture here in Mark 1, 21, through 34, 35, 34, I forget. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. And the message for us today is simple. When we surrender ourselves to the authority of this Jesus, when we surrender our anger, when we surrender our unforgiveness, when we sur surrender our bitterness and instead choose peace and reconciliation and forgiveness, when we surrender uh, uh, our desire for comfort and our reputation by reaching across the typical social boundaries and build relationships with people unlike us, when we surrender our lives to Jesus' authority and grow in our discipleship, learning what life is like in the kingdom and learn to do what he did, we will then be able to see what life in the kingdom looks like here in Woodenville as it is in heaven. We don't just have to read stories about this in the scriptures, in the New Testament. We can see this happen in our lives today Amen. as we surrender to this call to Jesus. And so the call today is to surrender. It's the only way to experience the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. The only question that remains is will we? Will we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your call is simple, but it's not easy. God, we carry many things. We hold on to many things that we think bring us security and safety. 
Uh, God, it's difficult to choose to forgive, to release anger, resentment, hurt. But by your power, we can. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would flood our hearts this morning. And as we hear this call to surrender, would you help us to do just that? Would you help us to surrender to your reign? And not just so that we could experience your peace, your flourishing in our lives, but God, would we surrender to you so that we could, like Peter's mother-in-law, go out into the world around us and serve you and serve others. That we would be able to see the power of your kingdom of light flood this broken world and redeem it, Lord. You look upon this creation, God, and you long for it to return to what you once called it good. And so would you help us to be agents of this kingdom, agents of resurrection life in the world around us? We're not gonna do that through might. We're not gonna do that through power. We are going to do that by serving others, Lord. Your model of serving others through weakness and humility and meekness, God, is the way forward. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage to take a step of faith and believe that even this week, God. We trust you. Would you help us surrender to you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.